Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. The rights and freedom of Afghan women are rapidly receding as the Taliban issues decrease curbing women's rights to education, work, free movements, and more. Right now, women cannot travel between cities and towns unless accompanied by a male chaperone or mahram. Many are out of the work, and in most areas, girls are no longer allowed to attend a school beyond the sixth grade. The Minister of Women's Affairs has been shut down in its place. Uh, the Taliban erected the Office of the Religious Morality Police. Not a single woman is among the 33 cabinet ministers of the Taliban interim government. But the atrocities against women are not limited to these restrictions. The Taliban have targeted women's rights activists, especially those who are protesting against them. The Taliban have been beating female demonstrators, spraying them with pepper spray, abducting and torturing them, and forcing public confessions in order to silence their voices. Afghan female protesters are and their family members are facing the threats of disappearance, torture, and intimidation. All of these events are happening while the Taliban are actively advocating for their de facto government and trying to persuade the world to recognize and financially support them. I'm Mulale Habibi, Program Officer at the International Civil Society Action Network, also known as ICANN. I'm a Krog Institute alum and completed my Master of Global Affairs degree in International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Q School of Global Affairs. Thank you for inviting me to host today's podcast. I'm so looking forward to this conversation about the current crisis facing Afghan women. Today on this episode of the Crowdcast, we'll have a conversation about the situation facing Afghan women and their agency and activism. I have the pleasure of speaking with two amazing women today. Vajmeh Farooq, founder of the Afghan Women and Peace Studies Organization. Welcome, Vajmeh. Thank you. And Heather Barr, Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Let's start by hearing a little more about the situation facing Afghan women on the ground and how they are responding. What is the most urgent need, demand, and hope of Afghan women right now? Vajmajan, you have more than 100 focal points in all over Afghanistan who are constantly reporting on the situation. What are you hearing these days? I would like to specifically hear what that is not appearing on the, West, uh, on the news in the West. Thank you. To understand like, the current situation, it's also important to see like what has been actually gained in the past 20 years, particularly and after the fall of the Taliban in, in 2001 and when women started opening up new spaces for themselves, getting into the politics, getting into the public life, getting into civil society media, and of course, a lot of legislative um, protections, legal protections, and despite all the challenges that we have had in the Afghan society. So by August 15, based on what we have been working around that, we had like around 40% of uh, workforce, um, both formal and informal, uh, being consistent um, consisted of uh, women and girls. And uh, at least 5 million girls going to school, 
we have had attacks on schools, universities, but there wasn't any government um, restriction on, on women's mobility or girls' ability, uh, mobility to anywhere. But after August 15, when the government was handed over by to the Taliban from the previous government and the, the previous government fled and um, started, um, so the Taliban started restrictions slowly. And what you hear from Kabul, for example, which is very much based on the Western media, that yes, things are are, are very much okay. People are going out around and, and the Taliban have actually created security and safety for Afghans. But beyond that, what I hear on daily basis, so... There's a mentality and by uh, the Taliban fighters or soldiers on the ground, which is of revenge, which is very much prevalent in many parts of the country, particularly in rural areas. Taliban having been at the receiving hand of, for example, the American night raids or the Afghan government, previous government night raids, or for example, if they were were kind of detained. So they are actually using the same methods or the same tactics on the local population uh, as a form of revenge. And that has created so much fear. On top of that, what has changed for women. Of course, they they have lost all those freedoms that they had until August 15, being able to simply to being able to get out of home. That has actually been been taken away from them. So women cannot get out of homes. Um, But for many in the provinces, for example, many, many women who used to work in the past 20 years, they had to flee from one province to another or, for example, from the provinces to Kabul for their protection and, and they are in hidings uh, and now that the search uh, home to home searches has started of course the life is, is even much more difficult than what you don't hear in the in the western media on daily basis is that you know um, there is a lot of um, crimes um, that that continues happening by the armed and um, uh, groups which are like armed fighters or armed men of the Taliban and um, who are taking revenge on on local communities or if they have had any sort of animosity with a, with with somebody like for example a judge being killed a prosecutor being killed or for example you know a woman um, and the women who used to work in the and the um, uh, women protection centers, for example, all of that on a daily basis, you know, these um, crimes continue happening. And we literally have no media beyond Kabul. So people's, uh, you know, these forced um, immigration that happens by on the ethnic groups, particularly Hazaras literally being forced to leave their homes, uh, you know, from Daikundi and Bamiyan, for example. We, we never hear about those stuff. Yeah, thank you very much and so much for sharing what's happening on the ground. I'm so sorry to hear that. Heather, the Taliban's violent crackdown on demonstrations for women's rights is alarming. Are you in touch with some of these women who have been protesting? What are they saying? What are their fears, hopes, and strategies? Thanks so much. Um, yeah, we have we have been in touch with some of the protesters and I think that this this protest movement has been remarkable. Um, as as you know, um, and as Washman talked about, I mean, many of the people who had dedicated their lives for a long time 
to um, women's rights activism, were forced to leave the country, were forced to go into hiding. But we still saw these protests happening beginning in the first days after the Taliban gained control of the country. And I think that a lot of these protesters are sort of a, a new generation and it's very organic. It's It's not necessarily people who had any involvement in activism before. It's people who have seen their lives taken away from them in the last six months and have felt that even though everyone knew from the beginning that it was going to be very dangerous to come out and protest against the Taliban in this public way, they they felt that they had nothing to lose um, and that it wasn't tolerable for them to live in the way that the Taliban was forcing them to live and, and they they had no choice but to speak out. I think I think over time, I mean, you know, we saw a very brutal response to these protests from the very beginning, um, with the Taliban beating protesters and beating and detaining journalists who covered the protests um, and tracking protesters down afterwards and intimidating them and threatening them. But I think the protests were really powerful and they really caused problems for the Taliban. They embarrassed the Taliban. They captured the attention of the international community and the international media at a time when, you know, everyone was feeling less and less interested in general in what was happening in Afghanistan. And so about a month ago, I think you really see a shift where the Taliban seem very determined to stop these protests from happening anymore at any cost. Um, and that's where, you know, we saw the Taliban breaking down the door of some of these women at night and abducting them um, and then keeping them in detention for weeks at a time. Um, you know, we saw this this sort of propaganda video where it was quite clear that they had been coerced into um, into confessing and saying that, you know, trying to into statements that were designed to discredit the the protests and the protesters. I think, you know, one of the most important questions is how committed the international community is to trying to stand by these protesters and try to protect their safety. And, and so far, there hasn't been enough of an effort to do that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Women activists, especially those who are practicing their rights to protest, are being arrested, abducted, disappeared and tortured. We just witnessed the release of a confessional video featuring Afghan women uh, retracting an earlier claim of torture and sexual assault by the Taliban. These women are uh, forced to say that uh, they had no other intention for protesting other than being evacuated. The video shows how the women are being forced to be silent. It also illustrates that the Taliban is consolidating their tyranny further and further while the international community is watching. Heather, I would like to come back to you again, and you briefly touched up and on that, but I have been speaking with many Afghan friends and partners, and the biggest question these days is if all those international rules and laws, regulations and resolutions on human rights and women's rights, many that have been in place for 75 years, have any power to be implemented and are actually effective. How would you answer this question? So I could really understand people feeling a sense of despair about that and feeling like, you know, this is all this is all fake and it doesn't do anything to protect us and it means nothing. It's been interesting today. I've been watching that the International Criminal Court seems to be moving quite quickly to try to take action about what's happening in Ukraine. 
And, you know, you can contrast this with the fact that the International Criminal Court has been saying that they're looking into Afghanistan since 2007 and with no real concrete action so far that that any of us can see. So it's very easy to, to feel a sense of despair. On the other hand, these are the only tools that we have, really. You know, there are political tools, bilateral relationships and so on, but but these mechanisms, these international human rights conventions and the mechanisms that are set up to try to enforce them are really some of the only tools that we have to try to protect human rights. And I think that there are some opportunities happening in the weeks ahead that we need to really focus on and, and see as important and see as as areas where we need to be doing advocacy. There are two important decisions that are going to be taken by the United Nations this month. One is about the renewal of the mandate for the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. So this has been, you know, it seems likely to be quite contested. It seems likely that China and Russia in particular may push for um, a much smaller mandate for the United Nations on the ground with a, a focus really only on humanitarian assistance and without the capacity or the, the duty to be monitoring the human rights situation. And, and that would be a disaster. I mean, I know many people have been critical over the years about UNAMA not doing as much as they wanted UNAMA to do, but we really desperately need UNAMA to be there, to be present, to have subnational offices, to have Afghan and international staff who are going out every day and monitoring what's happening. I think that this will influence the way that the Taliban behave. I think it will do a little bit to fill this void, this lack of information that we have because of the way that the Taliban has crushed the Afghan media. Um, So I see that as a very important decision. And then the second decision that's coming up, which is very important also, is a bunch of us have been pushing since the attack on the girls' school in Dashtabarchi last spring for um, for another UN mechanism to investigate in Afghanistan to complement UNAMA and focus on accountability for war crimes. We didn't get the fact-finding mission that we asked for, but we did get a special rapporteur, um, and that person is being appointed in March. And it's pretty clear at this point who it's likely to be The recommended candidate is someone named Richard Bennett, who previously actually worked for UNAMA. So we need to push to make sure that he has the resources and the staff and the political backing that he needs, including experts on gender, um, particularly Afghan women who are experts on gender, who, who can help him to make that mechanism as meaningful as possible. Thanks. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, the... Uh, thank you for pointing out uh, the um, the importance of inclusion of Afghan women in those delegations and those teams. This is something which is very crucial. And about the documentation, yeah, this is also very important. And I we will discuss that further down. I have a specific question about that. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you're having similar discussions on a daily basis with your contacts and women's circles about the um, practicality of the international laws. Would you like to speak a little about your observations and thoughts regarding the ways these uh, laws are implemented or not? Yeah, you know what, in the past over 20 years, like we relied a lot on the international human rights law mechanism, the UN Security Council resolutions. 
um, you know, um, in kind of promoting our agenda for women's rights in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, when we were working on the constitution, for example, trying to find similar references from CEDAW, for example, when we were working on the EVAO law, we kind of, you know, consulted so many international human rights mechanisms. National Action Plan for 1325 was a major instrument for us to push, for example, for women's inclusion in many non-conventional um, sectors like uh, police and army and security. So we have been using these as tools for our work in the past 20 years because we thought we were part of a global community. And, um, and we were made to feel like that at some points because Afghanistan was maybe at some point politically relevant. But um, what I, I've learned in all these years is that, you know, your country is as, was only as politically uh, relevant if uh, the West feels so. If the West, for example, feels you're not important anymore, you're not important anymore, and the news stops even considering that you exist. And that's what's happening to Afghanistan. And of course, I understand the fatigue around Afghanistan and what has actually failed repeatedly in the, in the country for all these years. But at the same time, um, it also comes back to the effectiveness of all these instruments that you were talking about and the international uh, mechanisms like the UN. I very much think, you know, UNAMA has, has missed all its opportunities all these years, uh, you know, for political solutions. Uh, UNAMA's role to push for political solution in Afghanistan uh, failed drastically, even when, for example, the, the elections issues happened. We had, you know, U.S. intervening to or, and pushing the candidates to come along and, and, and kind of accept each other rather than, you know, having a political dialogue so that all the different groups could come in. And, you know, so the political failures of, you know, um, lack of, you know, or, you know, almost failure to actually push for a political Settlement with the Taliban, of course, is, is also, and um, you know, uh, the reason of where we are today. And I'm not very much, uh, you know, positive that even if 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 you know, is giving uh, given a mandate um, stronger than its humanitarian like coordination, uh, that it will be of any use. Yes, maybe it, ha it might have, I agree with Heather, in terms of the influence, because the Taliban are very much cognizant of how the international um, you know media treats them or how international community feel about them so they they would very much um, be influenced by their presence in different parts of the country but remember you know in all these six months you hardly heard a word from you know you know most human rights and and for us on the ground you know like I've been frustrated to a level where you know people's lives have been have been at risk and I've shared it with the senior most level people um you know and there that you know these women are at risk there. Their homes have been attacked and they need to be protected. And, and the response I have received is, oh, I'm sorry, Wajma, but we do not have any resources. And this is across the UN, actually. And so I, I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, um, hopes that anything would change because understanding how Afghanistan kind of shifted, uh, you know, like yesterday you heard the the the, the State of Union, uh, you know, um, speech of the U.S. president and you did not even hear Afghanistan, a country that, you know, U.S. has played a role 
leading role in 20 years and has a leading role in the way it is today, but not even mentioning how the situation on the ground, while, you know, trying to defend the democratic rights of the Ukrainians, but not the, uh, defending the, uh, the democratic rights of Afghans. So I don't have a lot of hopes, uh, to, uh, to be very honest. That's so unfortunate. Thank you for sharing your honest thoughts. We have been through a lot since August last year. So many things happened that even today we do not have explanation for, from negotiating with a terrorist insurgent group to signing a deal with them, turning a blind eye on their forced uh, return as a de facto government, keeping silence on their atrocities and human rights defenses, and now receiving them by international delegations in EU and elsewhere. It might seem too late, but as an optimistic young Afghan woman myself, I would like to hear what you think the international community can or should do to help mitigate the situation for people of Afghanistan in general and Afghan women in particular. Vajmajan, uh, I would like to start again with you. What is the best way to support the voices of Afghan women without jeopardizing their lives? This is a very, very critical thing because what I've seen is that many people think that there is an, a way that we can continue, you know, supporting women or engaging with women without jeopardizing their lives. So that's not going to happen. It is going to jeopardize their lives because the, no matter what we do, all aspects of their lives are, are very much being, you know, um, under surveillance, literally. Um, A woman who comes out of home, for example, or even goes and visits another woman, you know, she she gets, uh, you know, um, of course she's scared, but at the same time she is very much, you know, being watched on or, or for example, would stop or or now many, many women cannot even enter, you know, a government um, um, institution without a male mahram. And in a country like Afghanistan, men wouldn't come you know, with a woman if she even has a problem to, to come and complain. So uh, we have lost those all those public spaces for women. But, you know, what's needed um, is to continue pressure the international community, to continue pressure the Taliban, um, you know, um, authorities. But at the same time, I also very much think that, you know, the, the of course, the humanitarian crisis, but at the same time, we are not going to be to be able to resolve this this crisis with a flower, with a sack of flour or a can of oil, the way UN has been dealing with it in the past six months. And they said we have reached 17 million people while 24 million people are still hungry because we can't just feed people for one day and think we are dealing with the crisis. So I very much think, you know, the political uh, pushing for a political solution, uh, pushing the Taliban to accept other groups in Afghanistan and create a political dialogue so that other groups could also come together and be part of the the uh, uh, transition process where you know there either there would be a jirga either there would be an uh, some sort of a you know an, uh, a people's kind of inclusion because many other ethnic groups are are very much uh, being sidelined in Afghanistan and that is a recipe of, of civil war in any country when people are being suppressed they might be suppressed for some times but then they, they would actually 
you know, kind of pushback. So a political solution is key in order to resolve the, the current crisis in Afghanistan. And women's issues should not be dealt in, in, in the isolation. Good, great. Thank you. What are the lessons of the international community and how can they uh, reverse wrong approaches from the past? What can the international community do to ensure Afghan women's rights and demands are met and their lives are saved? So I think that the international community and the U.S. in particular um, has a deep feeling of shame and embarrassment about Afghanistan right now. And I think you see this all the time um, in particularly the actions and the statements of Joe Biden. And that shame is warranted, but it shouldn't it shouldn't be seen as a reason to forget about Afghanistan and move on and not talk about it and not think about it anymore. What that shame should provoke is a deep sense of responsibility um, to try to fix the mess. And the first thing that that should entail is, is addressing the humanitarian crisis, which is an economic crisis, which was created by the United States. So there's one person who can do an enormous amount to end the humanitarian crisis, which is leading to children starving to death pretty much every day in Afghanistan right now. And and that is Joe Biden, um, because it's decisions by the U.S. that have absolutely destroyed the economic system in Afghanistan and and made it impossible for, for people to just do daily things like go to work and earn a salary and feed their families. So that's the first thing that has to happen. And and of course, it's a very complex problem to figure out how do you do that while still putting pressure on the Taliban, um, as Wajma has talked about. Um, how do you <clears throat> how do you address the the financial crisis without legitimizing the Taliban and, and making it seem like they are a legitimate government? Um, and, and these are complicated things, but they're not impossible things. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is that, I mean, even as, even in the last couple of days, you know, the Taliban made this announcement that people would not be allowed to leave the country. And then they seem to kind of row that, that um, statement back a bit after there were um, statements by foreign diplomats saying that, you know, this was unacceptable. And so, so I think you, you do see in their everyday actions that the Taliban does care about what the, the world thinks of them. They do want legitimacy. They do want to be accepted. They want to sit in the, in the, the Afghanistan chair at the United Nations and, and so on and so forth. And so, so there is some space to influence them, to negotiate with them. They, they obviously um, have some desire to have financial support from, from other countries as well. But I think what's been lacking in the international community and especially from the U.S. is um, a feeling of urgency, a feeling that, you know, this is a really crucial and important problem and everybody's got to come together and find a solution. It, it just feels like no one's been particularly interested and there hasn't been any any sense of urgency around the humanitarian crisis, around the Taliban abuses of, of human rights, particularly women's rights, uh, about any of it. And you know, it felt that way a week ago, and it felt feels even more like that now because I think that what we're seeing in response to Ukraine is is all of that kind of urgency and coordination that was was not there for Afghanistan. Um, so it's not too late 
to, to try to do better. And, you know, and there's that, that responsibility is, is still there. And so, you know, I see some positive signs, like I think that, you know, the appointment of Rena Miri as the, the U.S. special envoy can be a positive thing. I have some hopes for these, these U.N. mechanisms. I, I keep trying to say to countries that have said that they have a feminist foreign policy that um, this is the moment when we find out what that means, if it means anything. You know, if if feminist foreign policy doesn't mean standing by Afghan women in this moment, then maybe it doesn't mean anything. So come and show us that it does, you know? Yeah, great. Thank you. I would also like to draw attention on the Women, Peace and Security Act as well. So we have the responsibility and this is the moment and Afghanistan has always been a ground to test if these policies are really to work or not. Uh, Thank you. One of the very critical demands of the people of Afghanistan is to document Taliban atrocities. Vajmajan, again, um, I know that your contacts uh, are trying to report on the atrocities, but how much further can they go? Is there any way they can do this systematically? Well, it, it very much also depends on the resources, you know, available to them. Um, so one is the resources, both, you know, technical, financial, yeah, and their ability to do so and being able to get out. Of course, you know, if, if a woman is out and she, for example, tries to talk to another woman and tries to kind of record it then it it gets the attention and it gets very risky for her so a lot of what women have actually been sharing or even men have been sharing in different parts of the country have been informal you know ways um, of um, literally anecdotes and then sharing unverified um, you know experiences or stories from different parts of the country so that's very much you know creates the need for the, um, you know, um, the reporting mechanisms or the international organizations having those resources in place to connect with local women organizations or to connect with local um, organizations in general to be able to have, you know, at least some some structures. But at the same time, you know, um, I very much hope that uh, maybe the human rights Council, the special rapporteur for Afghanistan that will be starting, you know, I've worked with Richard Bennett in the past year. So I really hope that, you know, his um, mandate would be allowing to kind of have some sort of, uh, you know, data collection on the ground. And maybe, for example, I have not seen, uh, you know, Yunama's um, work on this, at least in the past six months. But um, I, I hear that they too have been working on this and many other human rights organization there's a human rights uh, you know um, coalition that has been formed by the international organizations but there's a lot of ad hoc things that's going on everybody is, is very much on their own so we do not have a coordinated mechanism and it's very much important to create some sort of a coordination around you know what does this documentation really mean how do we not put people's lives at risk and how do we do it in a way that's you know acceptable as well um, so that maybe it could be used eventually for ICC if we are able to or or other sort of, uh, you know, consequences. Okay, great. Thank you. 
Heather, uh, is there any mechanisms to keep uh, track of all the ways the Taliban is ruling back on uh, on the rights of uh, women and girls in Afghanistan? Uh, what are the groups that are or should be doing this work? If you could share a little bit on that, please. Sure, thank you. Um, I mean, we've been trying to keep a bit of a list just on the Human Rights Watch website, but you know that's a Twitter list on a website. That's not a serious kind of evidence collection effort um, because we we don't have the capacity um, or the mandate to do that. I think um, you know the network that Wajma has is really valuable, and and we've found some of the information that that you've been able to put out Wajma is super 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 helpful. And so I think that your point is really important about how. A network like that can be connected to um, international bodies. Um, I, I share your hopes that this is going to be a high priority for the special rapporteur, um, and I, you know I think we'll really look to him and his team to um, to be collecting collecting information and collecting evidence that can be used for prosecution later, because there are certainly things happening in Afghanistan that merit prosecution. Um, I think that, um, you know, we also have to to look at the diaspora communities and whether there are ways that the international community can do more to support um, women's rights activists who have had to leave Afghanistan, but who still, you know, have this great passion for this work, these amazing networks. So, So how can we be giving them um, the resources um, and the platform that they need to, to be helping us to collect that information. Um, and I really agree with you, Wajma, that we, we need more uh, coordination and structure. Um, I mean, you mentioned this coalition. I, I think maybe you mentioned the you're, you're referring to the statement that um, came out today. Human Rights Watch has joined together with, I think, um, nine other organizations, including Amnesty International and FIDH and Freedom Now and, and, and a bunch of other great organizations to, to try to sort of um, formalize a, a group. It's called the Alliance for Human Rights in Afghanistan, where we're going to try formally to work together on, um, I think it's going to be more of a focus on advocacy, on trying to hold the international community accountable for their actions on Afghanistan. But, um, but you know, part of what we need to be pushing for is is some more um, organized and meaningful and detailed evidence collection um, than has been happening so far. Because I think a lot of information has has slipped through the cracks, and we'll never know about what what's actually happened, particularly in remote parts of the country where the media has been entirely silenced. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, While Afghan women should have been celebrating their achievements on the 8th of March, International Women's Day, instead uh, they are out of school and work and fighting uh, hard for every basic rights while being called puppets of the West and horse. Rajmajan, what does the future look like for Afghan women? How do you see their situation one year from now? I don't see the, situ- the 
you know, the status of Afghan women different from the status of Afghanistan as a whole. If Afghanistan is a starving country, the Afghan women are starving. Or if Afghanistan is a is a tyranny, Afghan women are living in tyranny. So uh, I do not want, because this isolation and just looking at Afghan women in the ghetto has actually resulted in a very, very, uh, you know, um, grave mistakes that we have done in all these years. So I very much think, you know, that if Afghanistan can continues, um, you know, under this current situation in terms of the political, uh, you know, um, um, treatment of all citizens, women will uh, will similarly or even worse be treated. So uh, if, if, for example, there is an opportunity, if there is an opportunity for um, a change in, in the government, not in term, not change in that abrupt way, but at least some political, you know, negotiation with other groups or some political uh, reconciliation with the Taliban um, between uh, different um, political actors in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Maybe that will open up some spaces for other groups and other ethnic groups and other um, social groups, including women. And so that is something that I think it's, is important. But if, uh, you know, uh, if we are going to um, witness civil, uh, you know, um, resistance, if we are going to witness any war internally, if we are going to witness, you know, more crisis in Afghanistan. And so it had women would, would be as, as vulnerable um, as that crisis. So I'm, I'm just thinking women uh, women's situation would be very much the same as, as the whole Afghanistan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Heather, drawing on your international experience with women's and human rights, uh, what is your perspective on how we move forward? What are the best lessons that from women can draw up and to get closer to their demands? So, <laughs> I mean, I think there are, there are so many lessons from the last 20 years about um, what not to do. Um, and one of the most important lessons, I think, for the international community is that they've never listened to Afghans enough or much at all, honestly, exactly. including Afghan women. And so here's the time to, you know, again, it's it's not too late to try to learn that lesson. And there's an opportunity to, to try to learn that lesson now. I think, you know, one of the things that, that we see um, and I, I wonder if Wajma, you, you see this also, is that, you know, communities are, are pushing back. Communities are negotiating with the Taliban. Women are negotiating with the Taliban, even though it's difficult and dangerous for them to do so. Um, but I, I think, you know, you see that. And I think to me, that's, you know, one of the explanations for this kind of strange patchwork that we've seen emerge with regard to girls' secondary education, where... <clears throat> Some, you know, some provinces, the schools never closed. Some provinces, the schools reopened. The, the schools are still closed in most provinces, but you, you see this inconsistency. And I think it's because um, communities and women and girls are, are fighting for themselves um, and sometimes having success in negotiating with the Taliban. So one of the things I really want from the international community is for them to hear from Afghans about those efforts and think about how they, as, as foreigners, as foreigners with money, um, can act in ways that will, um, that will support those local efforts or at least not get in the way. 
Um, I think that 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 is one thing that can help things to gradually improve. I, I have some hope that the Taliban over time will you know, begin to understand the ways in which um, I think Afghan society has has changed um, for many mm-hmm. people in many parts of the country, um, in particularly around issues like demand for girls' education. Um, and, and then the other thing I want is for every feminist in the world to understand that the struggle of Afghan women is, is the struggle of women. You know, exactly. if this can happen in Afghanistan, how, how safe is any other woman? How safe are women in any other country? And so it's not um, it's not charity or kindness for us to be in solidarity um, with Afghan women. It's a search for our own survival, and and we better get on it. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I'd like to finish by hearing your message uh, to the Afghan women, the world, and those with leverage on the Taliban. Uh, Vajmajan, what is the best way uh, Afghan women can support each other's voice and efforts so that they get closer to their demands? I'm asking that especially in regard to to the relation and collaboration between the women inside and outside of Afghanistan. I think solidarity is key here. Uh, You know, when you feel you're not alone and it's not just a cliche, but it actually changes how, um, you know, like it literally gives people hope. What I've seen in the past few months, for example, when we started these self-help groups in in many provinces, for example, during the first days, many of our conversations started with five women. And today it actually, you know, in one session, we get more than 20, 25 women and and we we feel, you know, sad to actually ask them to, to leave because we only have a session for like 10 women or like that because of all the right and wrong reasons. So I think solidarity gives people hope um, to continue. And um, um, what I've seen in, in different, so beyond, you know, the media's um, kind of uh, spotlight, what I've seen in, in many provinces, women coming together, even for for very much, you know, um, kind of small basic reasons to know what, what is going on and so, so, sort of give each other a, a shoulder that, or trying to cry with each other together, that actually even changes people's ability to move on and to continue um, because um, what I'm also afraid of is that in the few months down the road we are going to witness huge you know mental um uh, uh, like women being so mentally and um, unwell and uh, that can actually result in suicide that can actually result you know in in, in continuous um cycles of violence within the family so uh, i'm i'm very much worried about that inside afghanistan but even women who have actually been uh, coming out and um, they are living in very very difficult um, kind of lives continuously dealing with refugee systems, not even having us a, a document or not even having a, a home or or you know living with with um, with many difficult you know challenges outside Afghanistan as well. So that solidarity is key, and and of course maybe um, at this point they are not able to do it on their own to kind of create these platforms where women inside Afghanistan can connect with women outside Afghanistan. There's a lot of we there's a lot of trauma that's alive, but at the same time there's a lot of resentment that's there. So for example that 
also opens up the need um, in the door uh, therefore you know our that international um, feminism uh, solidarity the women's movement globally to actually you know extend a hand beyond the politics that despite the fact that Afghanistan might not be politically relevant to your country anymore maybe your president is not interested in Afghanistan anymore but still that country exists there and there are millions of women who wake up in the morning and wish that today uh, they wouldn't be they would be allowed to actually go to work or that they would be allowed to see their daughters go to school. So these are very simple, you know, hopes of the Afghan women that are not different from millions of other women outside the world. Yeah, great. Thank you. As you mentioned, and Heather also emphasized emphasized the importance of uh, connection between the efforts on the ground and the diaspora. Afghan diaspora is, is um, very crucial at this moment and solidarity, of course. Um, Heather, what would you say to those with leverage on the Taliban about how to move forward and what action is needed now? For people listening, do you have uh, an invitation to them about how to get involved? Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so I'm from the U.S. and I lived in New York City on 9/11. I watched the towers fall, and I, and you know, and I remember being sold the war in Afghanistan. You know, I was quite a bit younger then; it was a long time ago. And uh, and I remember the images of women in burqas. You know, it was really we saw them every day, and 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 it was used very intentionally to explain to Americans. That you know, we needed we needed to go. We needed to save these women who were being forced to wear these blue things on their heads, and it was our responsibility as you know people who cared about human rights to 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 go and rescue them. And and of course, you know that was clumsy propaganda, and it was never what the war was about. But I think I would want to say um, to people in the U.S. that. Um, they, they share this responsibility. We elected these politicians in the U.S. We paid the taxes that funded the war. Um, this is our responsibility too. Um, and we don't have the option to, to sort of say, that's really nothing to do with me. Good luck to those people. Sorry to hear it's gone so badly for you. So yeah, that's my, that's my yeah. last message. Thank you. Thanks to each one of you for joining us for the conversation today and sharing with us your reflections and ideas. It has been such an amazing discussion. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.